If you've ever been a guest at the Art Bubble Danish International Comics Art Festival, you've met a lot of cool creators. But maybe you've wondered what they've been doing since they left the festival, and that's what we're here to find out. My name is Arnie, and I'm going to be your host as we catch up with guests of Art Bubble and find out what they've been doing for the past months or even years. And with us on this second episode of the Art Bubble Late Night Show, we have a creator who was uh, at Art Bubble in April of 2017, where he uh, was just about to come out with not a comic book but a movie. And his name is Anthony Johnston. Welcome, Anthony. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Very well. And so now people are gonna notice that I switch from a very American accent in my uh, introduction. Your accent changes, yes. <laughs> yes, I know. And and people are just going to have to get used to that because I've always done this and I don't know why I do it. It just comes very naturally to me. Yeah, well, what what most listeners probably don't know is that you and I have been friends now for a long time, 15 years or more. I think, and- I think it's actually closer to 20 is it? Yeah. Good Lord. yeah and yeah, I've always found this. I mean, your English is excellent, but I've always found it amusing that your accent switches according to who you're speaking with. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was thinking about it. I, I, I thought I would be mentioning this at some point because I know when I'm speaking with you that I just can't maintain the, uh, the American accent. I can't do it. No, you sound like you're from London. I know. And people will say, <laughs> oh, that's horrible. You should speak different. But no, sorry. <laughs> Um, but you were uh, a guest at the um, first Doc One um, Art Bubble edition, and um, if, in Aarhus, yeah, in Aarhus, yeah, and we're actually returning to Aarhus uh, later this year. And uh, it was a new venue; we hadn't tried it before. You hadn't come to Denmark before, so my first question would be: What was your own impression? It was a one-day event, six hours, and uh, it's quite a short one. It, it was a short one. Uh, let me just correct you. I had been to Denmark before, but not in a professional capacity. Um, I visited Denmark many years ago when I uh, backpacked around Europe, you know, as so many people do on the interrail ticket. Uh, and so I had been through Denmark before, but I'd never been to Aarhus and I'd certainly never been as a, a comics creator. And I, I mean, I liked the town. It was a very nice town. Um, as as you know, you know, we, we ate plenty. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we did, yeah. Uh, we ate and drank plenty, and it was, you know, I, I liked Aarhus quite a bit. Um, I loved the venue. Dokken, Dok One, whatever you want to call it, uh, I thought was a fantastic... We don't have anything like that in England. And to see such a sort of uh, state-funded community library project like that was amazing. I really, really just blew me away um and then the event itself was yeah it was a lot of fun there were so many people there from different parts of you know the comics community and obviously there were some other brits but then there were people from as you know you know switzerland france we had what was it, a guy from canada um just uh, finland just these amazing this amazing diversity of european and indeed global 
creators that I thought was fantastic. Uh, it was quite unlike any event, any comics event that I'd ever taken part in before. And I would love to come back someday when I have time and I can come over again. Uh, you know, I would love to, to come back. We would love to have you back. Because one of the things that, that you were doing um, was promoting not not just your comic, but the film Atomic Blonde, which you, just before the show, you got permission to print out a few um, copies of the poster or, or, or the um, new cover for the only version of... The- That's right. I was selling posters of the cover of the book, yeah, which has... We released a new edition to coincide with the movie's release. The movie is based on a comic book I did called... the uh, graphic novel I did called The Coldest City. And because they changed the title of the movie, we released a new edition of the comic book, of the graphic novel, with the movie title. So, you know, the the version, the paperback version that most people will now see in shops is called Atomic Blonde and has a picture of Charlize as the character Lorraine Broughton on the cover, you know, taken from the movie poster. And so, yeah, I printed off and was selling posters of that cover. Um, but of course, you know, most people uh, who go and see that movie have no idea that it's based on a graphic novel. So, um, you know, your listeners, people who actually are aware of it and who do love comic books and graphic novels, uh, you know, you're kind of in the know because the vast majority of people who've watched that movie have no idea. Well, I, I'm not sure if, if most people are in the know because it's not really um, a big selling book, is it? It's gone kind of under the radar, didn't it? Well, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it certainly didn't hit the bestseller lists when it was first released. The movie edition, as I say, the new edition that we released uh, with the retitled to match the movie, that sold very well. But that's because people, when they see a movie, will go and look for, you know, the book of the movie. Uh, I think most people these days assume that any movie either has a book that is adapting the movie or a book that the movie was adapted from. Um, and so people will just naturally go to a bookstore or go online and look for the title and see if there is a book that goes along with the movie. So as I say, that edition has actually sold very well. Um, initially it flew under the radar. Yes, it was originally released in 2012 and, you know, it got, we got lots of good response and critical acclaim for it. And we sold a few, but certainly we weren't you know, troubling the top of the sales charts with it. But that's okay. It was never, we never expected to. It was not that kind of book. And, you know, we realized that the main reason the new edition has sold so well is because of the movie. That's obvious. Um, But I was also very happy with the movie. So I don't mind that. I'm very happy that uh, people associate the title now with the movie more than the graphic novel. Because honestly, I thought the movie was great. And if that brings a certain number of those people who saw it to the graphic novel and of course to my other graphic novels as well then you know everybody wins that's great for me oh obviously um and and that leads kind of leads to my next question how well did the movie do uh, do, do you have anything any information on on sales other than what's public uh not other than what's public um what i do know from the sort of box office figures is that we worldwide officially we took i think 98 million dollars at the box office oh wow uh just shy of 100 million in reality i think we actually did go over 100 million but that's 
because of the vagaries of box office reporting, you know, officially we're just under it. But we also did very well on home video, streaming, digital sales, Blu-ray sales. Uh, you know, those were quite significant as well. When it was released on the American iTunes store in November, it was number one. It was number one in the charts the week it was released. Uh, and not only that, but it then stayed in the top 10 movies from November right through until the new year on iTunes US, which is quite impressive. That's Most really, movies don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive. That's amazing. So, yeah, so the home video release has done really well. And like I say, you know, continued awareness and success of the movie helps bring people to the graphic novel. Um, so, yeah, you know, as I say, it's uh, it's a win all round. Awesome. Do you Do you feel that, people might be slightly let down by the less violent nature of the comic book or the graphic novel as opposed to uh, Charlize Theron kicking arse all the way through? <laughs> I think it depends what they, you know, what they came to the movie for and what they came to the book for. I think most people expect these days that a Hollywood version of a book or a graphic novel will have more action than the book because that's been true for a long time now um so you know as long as they know that going in hopefully the increased emphasis in the graphic novel on spycraft and the sort of the tension and all the double crosses and you know the john le carre style spy plotting of the graphic novel because there's much more of that in the graphic novel than in the movie uh, by by contrast so if people are going to the book with that expectation or at least with the expectation that it will be perhaps a bit more intellectual and less action focused then hopefully that'll make up for it and they'll you know they'll get a similar feeling of satisfaction but in a different way from the graphic novel as they did from the movie that's true because we we spoke um at some length in Aarhus um did an interview actually for Art Bubble TV Yes, and in that interview, I I compared the graphic novel more to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and you just mentioned uh, Le Carre as you did in that interview as well, and that is definitely a very very different vibe from from what you get in the Atomic Blonde film. And I have a confession to make now, and and you since you're sitting in England and I'm here, I haven't seen the movie yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's horrible because I was really looking forward to it and I didn't manage to catch it in the cinema. And I know it's out on streaming now, so now I just have to like get to it. But I haven't actually seen it yet, so I still have that to look forward to. Well, I hope you enjoy it when you do. And yeah, it's, you know, you can get it on, uh, I'm not sure which streaming services exactly, but I know that it's not restricted in any way. So I'd expect that you'd be able to get it on places like amazon and netflix you know the usual kind of streaming venues well in denmark they we have something called via play um which is a streaming network that carries recent films but it's still for sale on there so maybe in a few months it will be for regular streaming just as a part of your subscription but right oh, maybe, but right yeah. now it's just yeah rental or or sale through their app as well as on itunes of course in denmark of course yeah, yeah. so if we move on from um, from Atomic Blonde and stuff falling from my desk here, um, 
how how have you been doing for for the past few months and well it's been close to a year and and what have you been up to it has been almost a year which is kind of blows my mind um uh it's been a bit of a whirlwind because uh as you say the, you know the uh the art bubble that i was at last year was before the release of the movie and so uh in the several months following art bubble i was focused almost entirely on the release of the movie uh we had the uh south by southwest festival in austin where we had the festival debut of atomic blonde uh, and then there was the premiere in berlin complete with big red carpet you know event uh in a square in uh i was gonna say west berlin then <laughs> it's all berlin now uh showing my age um uh, and then from there, I went straight to San Diego Comic-Con for a couple of days. And then from there, I went straight to Los Angeles t- for the L.A. premiere of the movie and the big, uh, you know, after party, if you like, a sort of rap, not a rap party, but, you know, with all the principals and cast and producers and everything there to celebrate the release. So that was kind of th- the whole thing was a, a real whirlwind. And that took up a lot of my time immediately between Art Bubble and, let's say, July of last year. That is a lot of time, yeah. It it is, yeah, yeah. Um, And I was, not that I wasn't doing any work between those two times, but it was, I was constantly on the phone with people in Los Angeles and sorting out travel plans and, you know, there was a a lot to get done. So, uh, So I really sort of got back to work in earnest after I returned from Los Angeles. But while I was out there, I also had... Uh, you know, I spent a week having meetings with movie producers and executives and stuff about the other movies and the prospect of, you know, uh, working out there and stuff. So it was still a kind of working holiday, if you like. And I came back to, uh, what did I have? I had the, oh, the second volume of my series Codename Babushka at Image, which was the series was called Ghost Station Zero. That, uh, I finished writing that and that was released. And the trade paperback collection of that actually just came out a week or two ago as we speak. Um, I released my debut mainstream novel called The Exphoria Code that came out in December of last year. And I've begun working on a second on a sequel to that novel already. Um, I finished this is one of the things i did do immediately after getting back from art bubble when i had some spare time was i finished a short story a science fiction story called soul music which is uh, which i then sold to interzone magazine which is britain's longest running science fiction and fantasy magazine i used to read it when i was a kid um and uh, i i sold the story to them and that's actually in the new issue of interzone that comes out like now it literally was released i think you know two days ago um so that's very exciting for me uh what else i'm started work on a third coldest graphic novel oh really uh, which yeah which will again focus on the character of the lorraine brought in the second book coldest winter focuses on david percival which is the character james mcavoy plays in the movie it's a prequel about his character so the, for the third book i'm returning it's another prequel but i'm returning to the character of Lorraine. Uh, and I don't want to say too much about it because I'm still working on it, but I'm very excited about it. And it will, what can I say about it? It will explain how Lorraine finds herself in the situation in which she finds herself at the start of The Coldest City, which is, I know, a very cryptic <laughs> description. Sounds like a prequel. 
<laughs> it is a prequel. It absolutely is. Yeah. Um, but that that's sort of you know the most I can say about it without giving anything away. Uh, and then I also, as I say, I also discussed while I was out there in LA about doing some work uh, in the movie business. So I've been I've also in that time written a treatment for a screenplay and a TV um, pilot. Uh, and you know various other things that I, I can't really talk about, unfortunately. But yeah, I've been busy. But then I, I you, you know me, I'm always busy. I like to, I make myself busy. <laughs> yeah, because aside from from doing all the uh, all the writing and stuff, you've got not, I think, not just one but two podcasts yourself, haven't you? Well, one of them I actually had to put on hiatus in September of last year uh, because it was unfortunately I don't have the time to make it anymore so uh, that was a podcast called unjustly maligned on the incomparable network which ran for two and a half years uh initially weekly and then every two weeks but unfortunately i mean i love the show and i really hope that i can bring it back at some point but it takes a lot of time to prepare as well as then recording and editing and all that but literally just preparing for the show takes you know probably a whole day for per, for each episode of the show and i just can't spare that time unfortunately uh, at the moment so the other one i do is uh, a heavy metal podcast called thrash it out which i do with um a uh, friend and uh, colleague brian latendry an american who we, we're both really into heavy metal have been all our lives and what we do on that show is take it in turns to make the other person listen to a heavy metal album of our choice and then we argue about it because <laughs> uh, because our tastes in metal are very different he loves uh sort of like you know traditional thrash and 80s glam and that sort of you know rock and roll style heavy metal whereas i like i'm more of a sort of motorhead slipknot gothic metal uh kind of guy so you know we're great friends but our tastes are very different so that's a fun show to do and obviously that doesn't take anywhere near the preparation that unjustly maligned did so we continue to do that and we put out an episode about once every four or five weeks of that yeah and for those of you who want to hear unjustly maligned it's an excellent show i've been listening to it lately um so unfortunately maybe for me i have a lot to still listen to in that regard i'm i think i've only done like three or four episodes so far so there's plenty oh god of, no there's loads yeah oh, no, we there's did eight, 80 something 87 yeah. Yeah. 87 when we put it on hiatus yeah um yeah you can find it at ump.fm that's the simplest url to follow that will take you to the incomparables website where you can get you know links and the rss feeds or you can just look for it on itunes or on the google play podcast store you know all the usual places uh it's it's pretty easy to find yeah and that's our shameless plug for today. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> now, um, of course, you say you can't can't speak about all the things that you're doing. Um, but other than the obvious with Atomic Blonde and, and now the follow well, prequel, it's not a follow up um, and Codename Babushka, you've written quite a few other comics and graphic novels. You had a huge run on uh, Wasteland, the post-apocalyptic tale and now you're just writing shorter stuff, really. Um, what's it like? What's it been like for you switching from that longer running saga to to something short and sweet, and maybe it's quicker? I don't know. Well, it's less exhausting. Um, the thing is, I always I started out writing shorter things. If you look at my early work, when I 
broke into comics. My first releases were all things like miniseries or and graphic novels. I released, I think, four, maybe five original graphic novels before I even began Wasteland. So I was always used to working in that style. It was Wasteland, if anything, that was a departure because... What I didn't do, what I've never really done, is have a long run on a monthly ongoing book at like Marvel or DC. So that sort of monthly, every month got to turn in an issue, you know, for years and years. I'd never done that before. Uh, And so, and I knew that if I was going to do it, I probably wanted to do it on my own creation, on a series that was mine rather than taking over a superhero book. Uh, And so that's why I did Wasteland in that way. And yes, that was a 60 issue series that ran for eight years. Um, and it was exhausting. It was absolutely, <laughs> I got to the end and uh, I felt like I'd run 10 marathons. Um, and it was, you know, frankly difficult to keep going at times, uh, you know, just because of, because over that length of time, things will happen. People come and go, artists leave editorial difficulties, whatever. Um, sales go up and down as well. So it it really required a tenacity, uh, unlike any other project that I'd done before or frankly since. And I think I, I got to the end and I was like, okay, now I know, now I understand why lots of, or not lots actually, but th- there are, there are a relatively small number of comics creators who have done series like that, closed series of like 50 or 60 issues that are effectively one big long story. You know, there's Wasteland, obviously, Sandman, Transmetropolitan. Preacher. Preacher, Scalped, you know, those sort of books. Um, But when you look at how many of those there are, there really aren't that many. It's a relatively small group of writers who've done that sort of thing, and even less artists who've managed to sustain those sorts of uh, runs on a single book and and not many of us do it again <laughs> and that's what i got to the end and i was like oh now i know why people like neil gaiman never ever did a series like that again or warren never did a series like transmetropolitan again or garth never did a series like preacher again it's because it's absolutely exhausting you get to the end and you think i'm never doing that again what a fool <laughs> my god i was insane what was i thinking you know um on the other hand obviously you know sort of stepping back with the the benefit of a bit of time and perspective i am enormously proud of wasteland because so few creators have even attempted to do something like it uh let alone actually finished it and also because looking back at the work i'm very very proud of the work that i did and that you know i achieved with all my artistic collaborators on the series um it's uh, yeah i think it stands up i think it it holds up as a as a work of art and i'm very proud of that oh you should be it's a wonderful series and and like you said there's a lot of people involved in in creating something that's lasting that's this long it's not like you would say uh, a superman tale where you switch out uh, especially the artists every once in a while because um, it does take tenacity and, and a lot of time to create uh, a comic book. Yeah. Well, and we tried to, re- I mean, ideally, what we, you know, would given my druthers, I would have uh, just had myself and Chris Mitten uh, 
my co-creator on Wasteland, throughout the entire run. You know, if if I could have had anything in the world, it would have been 60 issues of just me and Christopher. Um, but that wasn't realistic. And uh, when he, after I think, you know, the first three or four years, eventually said, I, I have to go and do something else or I'm going to go insane, which, you know, I totally understood. Um, you know, we then, we did go through a couple of artists, but it wasn't long before we settled on uh well we found russell rowling for one arc which was great and then we had justin greenwood uh Mm. who did two quite long story arcs for us and then chris came back for the final story arc so you know we we tried to be consistent and have as few different artists on the series as possible just because of the nature of the story that continuity that artistic and visual continuity really helps with you know immersing yourself in the world of the book and the world of wasteland um you know if you if it looks different every time you come back to it then it's more difficult to allow yourself to become lost in the world and readers becoming sort of immersed and lost in the world while reading it was something that i really really wanted to achieve with that book and so it was really important to me that we strive for that and so that's why we tried to have as few different artists throughout the series as possible well that's very important and you mentioned justin greenwood who you whom you've uh worked with again um just recently yes we did a book called the fuse at image that ran for 24 issues um and again went on hiatus but the difference there was we'd always said we would do four volumes basically so there's 24 issues are collected into four trade paperbacks and we always said that we would do four volumes and then we'd reassess and what happened was we got to the end of that fourth volume and it felt like a natural i won't i don't want to say stopping point but felt like a natural pause point and also at that time atomic blonde was happening and just starting to sort of take off and justin had been asked to do a couple of other projects like big projects for you know sort of big american publishers uh that he naturally wanted to do and i didn't want to deny him the chance and the opportunity to do those projects so we agreed that that would be the end of it for now but actually as it happens just a few months ago I think maybe a month or two before the new year, uh, Justin and I started talking again about doing another volume at least, and maybe even another sort of short series run of The Fuse. Now, what form it will take and when it will be released, that I can't tell you. I literally haven't started writing it yet, but we have begun kicking around ideas uh, because it's a world that we both really really enjoyed creating and you know living in ourselves while we were making it while we were creating the series Uh, for people who don't know the fuse is a sci-fi cops series it's about two homicide detectives solving murders on a rundown orbiting space station it's an old solar power station orbiting the earth um and it's kind of run down the police department is underfunded and undermanned and overworked and uh yeah it you know it's a kind of it's some people call it csi in space (laughs) which i mean it's not as glamorous as csi but it's that sort of thing it really is the kind of detective work of solving a murder they just happen to be in orbit and so some of the cases revolve around what happens on a space station and the sort of murders that can only take place in that world in space so 
as I say, we both really enjoyed working in that uh, world and sort of immersing ourselves in that creation. So we definitely want to come back and, and do something more there again. And Justin and I also just enjoy working together. You know, we work well together. We're a good team uh, along with Chris Mitten. You know, he's one of my most regular and valued collaborators. And so we'll definitely do something again uh, and hopefully within the world of the fuse. But like I say, I, I can't give any details just because I literally haven't started writing it yet. Oh, that's all right. I think we'll we'll just look forward to seeing what you two have to offer. Now, you mentioned uh, both Chris and, and Justin and uh, and a few other creators uh, a few minutes ago. And some time ago, we had a conversation about what attracts you to artists, what it is that you look for uh, in artistic collaborations and so on. Um, and I would actually like to, to for you to expand on that. What is it that you or, or a writer perhaps – should be looking for in in a collaboration or a collaborator that might blossom into the kind of stuff that you've been doing with with Chris and Justin? Well, I think, I mean, I can only speak for myself. You know, different writers will look for different things in artists that they work with. Uh, and different artists will have, you know, different sort of aims and ambitions themselves. But speaking purely for myself, what I like is th the most important thing in any comic artist for me, is the ability to tell a story visually, which sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but you would be surprised at, uh, you know, some uh, aspiring artists whose portfolios I see and they, they don't place enough importance upon that, you know, and they're not concentrating on learning how to tell a story with pictures. Um, they're drawing lovely, you know, their style may be wonderful and they're drawing lovely pin-up pictures of, superman flying through the air or whatever but when it comes to actually telling a story in multiple panels they're not focusing on it uh you know it's surprising how many young artists don't do that and i always encourage artists to make that the priority because if you can get that if you can nail that part of it everything else the rendering and your sort of your anatomy and that all that will come you know that will come with practice and with time but uh, just as a natural part of drawing things over and over and over again. But learning how to tell a story visually is something that I think takes a lot more effort and focus on, uh, you know, education and learning and drawing on um, sort of people who've come before you and, you know, looking at existing comics that are told really well visually, breaking them down and going, okay, how do they do this? Something like the late Steve Dillon. Uh, who was one of my comics heroes. Oh, was, mine as nobody, well, yeah. Nobody would ever have accused Steve of being a flashy artist, you know? <laughs> he was not a guy whose work was kind of, you know, lovingly rendered and beautifully painted and all that sort of thing. But what it did was tell a story like almost nobody else could in comics. His storytelling ability was almost unparalleled. It was incredible. Um, so that, obviously, I look for. Beyond that, in terms of style, I the most important thing that I look for, and I think this is what I said to you when you asked me this before, is I, I like artists who don't look like anybody else, whose work, when you look at it, you immediately know that it's them because there are some artists especially mainstream guys who work for marvel and dc who 
whose style is more of a house style. Now, this is decreasing, actually, in recent years, and I think this is a good thing. In the 80s, it was very easy to pick up, uh, you know, a superhero book from Marvel or DC, and unless you were a real, really into it, unless you were a real nerd, you could be forgiven for not knowing who'd drawn it, because you'd look at it and go, well, that could be one of, like, a dozen guys, you know. They weren't distinct enough from each other. Uh, and I... I've never been a fan of that. I like artists who, as soon as you see even one panel, you go, oh, that's Steve Dillon, or that's mm. Carla Sescara, or that's Chris Mitten, or Justin Greenwood. You know, these guys, you can see immediately, you see one picture and you go, oh, I know exactly who drew that. And that's what I like. I don't care. Not caring is, that's, that's the wrong way to say it, but I just, I'm not bothered by specific uh, sort of rendering techniques and that sort of thing, you know, because I think those are down to the artist, you know, and if one artist wants to cross hatch everything and one artist just uses a single line and all that sort of stuff, that's not, to me, that's not important because that's important to the artist and it will be important to the artwork, you know, when it's laid down in the comic book. But in terms of telling the story, I don't think that's as important. I think those are two separate things. Your rendering style and your ability to tell a story are almost kind of separate things. It's a bit like a writer who can tell a great story, but can't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily write sort of, I don't know, natural sounding dialogue. You know, they're two different skills and you don't necessarily, just because you might be good at one doesn't necessarily mean you're good at the other. And I feel that way about artists and their styles. As I say, the most important thing to me is storytelling. And if the storytelling is great, then I almost, as I say, not caring is the wrong way to put it, but I almost don't care what their rendering style is as long as the storytelling is great. So that's what I look for, sort of distinctive style that tells a story really well. And beyond that, it, that you know, everything beyond that is just a matter of style and personal taste. Yeah, and you've worked with with a, a sleuth of artists throughout the years. I know that. Um, I remember you working with um, Aman Chaudhry. That was one yep. on one of your first books, and that was more of a prose novel, though. Uh, it was an illustrated novella, yeah. yeah and exactly. Aman, for that, Aman did digital full color paintings, um, and yeah, his style is completely different to anybody else that I've worked with. You know, I've worked with yeah Mike Norton, who again, has a very distinctive style that I certainly can recognize as soon as I see it. Uh, Mike Hawthorne, who, again, his star the style that he used on Three Days in Europe, which is another of my early books, was really distinctive. Um, Brett Welderly, again, you you can never mistake one of Brett's pieces of work for anybody else. Ben Templesmith, who I did the Dead Space comics with. Uh, again, you know, Ben's work, is it's different com yeah it's completely him it can't be anybody else you look at it and you know immediately yeah exactly ben yeah um and so yeah i think that demonstrates what i'm saying that i've worked with a massive massively wide variety of artists with an incredible array of artistic styles but what links them all is that they're all great storytellers and so that as i say that shows that that for me is the most important thing yeah, and, and Ben was a guest at um, Art Bubble as well, actually, back in um, 2012. 
And that's when I got introduced to the festival. Um, so I'm hoping we'll have him back as well. But yeah, you, he's a lovely guy. Yeah, he's absolutely wonderful. It's actually on the day of recording today, March 7th, is his birthday. So he's turning 40 today. Hey! Yeah, happy birthday, happy birthday ben. ben, if you hear this, <laughs> mate. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, he's a week my junior, so I've uh, and I've known him, yeah, same as you, for, for about 20 years. And um, I actually wanted to bring that up for some weird reason, because when you look around in... The comics community today, when you look at the people who are writing the bit, the big, some of the big writers at least, um, Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, both doing really, really well. Yourself, um, Kieran Gillen, who's been doing Star Wars and, and is reshaping, um, the Star Wars canon, basically. Um, there are so many people who came out of the, into space that was the Warren Ellis Forum, and I, when whenever people start hearing me talk about the Warren Ellis Forum, they their jaws drop. So, in in as one of the more successful people to come out of the Warren Ellis Forum, what do you think that the platform that Warren gave people? What what do you think that contributed to in terms of yeah modern comics? I think it will. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, funnily enough, I actually regard myself as one of the less <laughs> successful people to come out of the Warren Ellis Forum. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I know that I've been very fortunate. But when you can, you know, compared to people like Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue, Kieran Gillen, Brian Wood, you know, these people have had enormously successful, uh, you know, and popular and high selling careers within comics um you know much much more so than me i'm just kind of i'm there bubbling along <laughs> underneath um i think it was a moment in time it was kind of lightning in a bottle as we say and i don't know if you can ever replicate that sort of thing consciously i think it comes about uh you know just by chance warren obviously had a lot of foresight in opening a forum dedicated, you know, just to him and his works. But he also had the the foresight and the wisdom when it began getting very, very busy and people were discussing, you know, things that had nothing to do with his work. He had the wisdom to step back and let people do that. I think he saw that it was becoming a gathering place for, you know, a, sort of a new generation of creators not just in comics there were musicians there were prose writers you know there were people on the forum who've gone on to become very successful musicians and filmmakers and novelists it just became this nexus of creative people uh as i say a new generation of creators uh who we all found i mean we all had one thing in common and that was that we all liked warren's work we all oh, most of us yeah. most of us love transmetropolitan you know that was the thing that brought most of us to that forum mm. but beyond that and because transmet itself encompassed such a wide variety of styles uh, and planetary of course was the other big series that he had going at the time and because both of those encompassed such a wide variety of subjects and styles uh i think that contributed to the diversity of people who found the forum and so yeah, there was this enormous cross-section of people. Many of them were artists. And it was just a place that we knew we could go to socialise, obviously, but also be kind of stimulated creatively. I think we all fed off one another in a way. 
in terms of being creative and our ambitions to you know make a living of being creators of one kind or another uh and we were also just a very sympathetic bunch i mean most of us most of the people that i've named uh and you know others say as i say people like you know some of the musicians and novelists and stuff that came out of there we're all still friends you know most of us still talk to one another fairly regularly or if we happen to be in conventions together or something we will get together and you know try and go and have dinner or something yeah Um, everybody meets in front of the only booth from what i can gather (laughs) yeah (laughs) at san diego yeah Um, oh new york as well that's what that's where i kept seeing everybody because you maybe because you were there Uh, yeah possibly so possibly so but yeah we we are all still in touch and i think that's the other thing that of course you can't predict is whether or not you can try and bring lots of people together but you cannot predict whether or not they will get along and whether they will find mutual value in you know developing that friendship and that acquaintance but with the warren Ellis forum there was this fair it's a core group but it was a fairly large core group who, you know, we all had fairly similar feelings about the industry and about how to be a creator um, and how to sort of develop one's career. And so, yeah, as I say, you know, we're all still, or many of us anyway, are still in touch now. I think that's the other valuable thing that the Warren Ellis Forum gave to a lot of people. And and this was uh, explicitly down to Warren, was at the time Warren was a bit of an activist about uh the life of a creator and the role of creators within comics and uh you know how the importance of following one's own vision and all that sort of stuff uh and also uh, frankly being a good businessman and you know paying attention to your contracts Mm. and that sort of thing uh and at the time not many people were talking about that sort of thing within the industry but warren was and a lot of us I mean, to some people, that was probably quite radical and sort of new concepts. I was already working in a creative field at that point. So to me, it wasn't new per se. But what was new was seeing somebody in this other field, comics that I wasn't yet a part of, uh, talking about the same things. And so that made me think, oh, okay, this is good. I can apply some of the things I have learned as a businessman outside of comics to the same to that industry you know the same attitudes the same uh way of behaving like a professional yes being careful about contracts all that sort of thing you know and approaching my work in a business-like way and i don't mean that to sound sort of cold and dispassionate but when you're a freelance creator you are a business you know and my business keeps a roof over my head and puts food (laughs) in my refrigerator uh so it's important to be a businessman um and yeah it was that was one of the things that warren was really good at was encouraging that next generation to be more aware of their contracts to not sign away all their rights to behave more like businessmen um and i think that really helped because i think that attitude has now percolated down through generations whether it's because we've said the same thing to the next generation after us and so on and so on or just because those ideas have permeated out into the wider cultural conversation around comics either way i think a lot of that did start with the warren ellis forum and that's one thing you can i think definitely trace back to that forum and that very unique point in time 
And it was unique, wasn't it? Because I, I remember, like you mentioned, um, you mentioned Brian Wood and I mentioned Matt and, and Kelly Sue who went on to get married even. Uh, so a lot of relationships um, sprang from that forum as well. And aside from all the creative talent that went on to do um, good things, we also have people who have started stores, uh, started festivals. I, I, I didn't start Art Bubble, I'm not saying that. Uh, but Chris Butcher, who has recently been named a, what was it, travelling editor of Wiz, went on to, to start the Toronto Comics Art Festival. Uh, TCAF, that's yeah, right. TCAF. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so you are right that that a lot of things did happen in that space. And, and I doubt, like you said, that we're ever going to see anything like that again. But you never know. Um, well, I think you can't replicate that exact thing because it was very much of its time and place. And it was very um, natural as well. It just happened. It, it was, it was. But what you do get now is just, it's just different. You know, instead you have hundreds of creators talking to one another, one another every day on Twitter, for mm, example, or on true. Facebook. Um, you know, and you get those sort of cultural conversations, which actually have a much wider reach. It's a lot easier for people to read a conversation on Twitter than it is to go to Delphi.com, create an account, yeah. log in, find the Warren Ellis forum, read through the messages there. You know, we got used to doing it, of course, but it was very primitive. It was the early days of the internet. And now there is actually the much greater potential for, uh, you know, the sort of the wide spreading of these conversations and these ideas. Uh, the difficulty now is that because there are so many ways to converse online, the difficulty now is cutting through all those and finding the really good stuff within, you know, the enormous chatter and noise around social media because, mm. you know, it, it could very easy to be overwhelmed by that sort of stuff these days. Whereas when that didn't exist, <laughs> the Warren Ellis Forum was one of the only places you could actually even go on the internet uh, and talk about this stuff. Yeah, and talk about comics. That's true. Well, I, I never, I never did really get into twitter like i know a lot of people did and to me it just got to be too many conversations too many people talking so i do have an account still um but i don't use it and i rarely follow it um but maybe that should change i don't know but i i do notice though that in context with what you were saying about creator rights and, and keeping an eye on your contract that a lot of the creators today the big names um, I'm thinking Sean Murphy in particular, who's a fantastic artist, is really vocal about what he earns as a comics artist, what he's doing to secure a pension um, after he, he stops working and so on by buying artwork and, and investing the money that he does get. Do you feel that um, working as a freelancer or maybe not the much the freelance work, but rather the conditions that are um, – prevalent in the US in terms of healthcare and and in England you have your issues as well do you feel that they have a huge impact on the industry oh i think they do yeah absolutely uh, i mean that's you know most of your listeners obviously uh, are not going to be living in the uk or america and so i don't know how much uh, you know how much uh, people listening out there know about the way our societies uh, operate in terms of 
making a living uh and state support and that's that's the biggest difference i think uh you know most especially in scandinavia most european countries have much greater state support and safety nets uh social security as we used to call it here in the uk uh for people and so there is less need to sort of hard scrabble around to earn every penny just so you can survive and pay your rent whereas in the less so in the uk but it's certainly in the us especially that's absolutely vital there's almost no uh social security or safety net there at all and so i think that it makes that's why americans are such hustlers you know why they are always angling for another job more work better money uh you know they're always sort of on the i don't want to say on the make because that has negative connotations but they're always hustling they're always looking for work and trying to get the best deal they can um and that does you know there are good and bad things that come out of that attitude and we have it as i say here in the uk to a lesser extent but we do have it partly because of american influence on our society and culture which obviously is quite large but also because we don't have we do have some uh, safety net and some state support but it's nowhere near as extensive as most european countries and so and we also have an enormously high cost of living compared to uh our actual sort of average earnings when you compare our average earnings uh, against other countries with similar average earnings and our cost of living it's ridiculously high um and so as a freelancer frankly it's not easy it never has been uh and i'm not saying it's necessarily easy in european countries but there is more of a there's less of a need to be mercenary about it whereas in the uk and the us you kind of have to be a bit looking out for number one and a bit mercenary and sort of ruthless in business just to survive as a freelancer and i wish that wasn't the case i wish that weren't so but it is the truth and so yeah i think that has to have an effect on the culture of freelancing within the industry as we know it because the industry is so focused around the american market and american and british creators so in in terms of um let's say a danish artist or or a creator were to go to the us or or to england even uh, which is closer would you have any sort of um, advice for that creator in terms of uh, contracts what to look out for or and and such oh well i mean in terms of contracts it would be the same no matter where you are which is you know try and retain as many of your rights and as much of your ownership as you possibly can and try not to give any of those to the publisher or as few of those to the publisher as you can you know because a publisher will take and you know this is what publishers do of course this is their job publishers will buy absolutely everything that you own for pennies if they can and your job is to make sure that they buy as little as possible for you know not pennies for as much as possible uh that's just that's always the two sides of the equation there's nothing good or bad about that that's just the reality of the situation so and that's the same no matter where you go the main difference is don't for the love of anything uh come to the uk or go to the us and assume that you will be able to make a living as a freelance artist um certainly not soon and possibly not ever because there are very very few people 
in the comics industry doing it full-time and making a living when you look at the you know compared to the population as a whole there are very very few people actually doing it and making a living it's not easy to get in it's not easy to stay in and to continue making a living and so you often hear the phrase don't give up your day job that's why because you know this life is precarious at times and uh, as long as you know that as long as you're aware of that and you have some kind of other income then you'll be all right the problems come when you know sort of wide-eyed starry-eyed young people uh think that they can just spend six months drawing a few sample pages and then immediately get a job with marvel or dc that will make them a living and enable them to buy a house that's that's rare <laughs> i'm not going to say it never happens but it is very very rare uh and so yeah you know just be sensible just be sensible be frugal don't assume uh that you will be able to make a living certainly within the first couple of years of trying to break in to the industry and just, you know, see how it goes. At the same time, if you are a young creator and you want to get into the industry, the most important thing, I mean, obviously a level of skill and talent is important, but honestly, the most important thing is perseverance and tenacity. And if you don't have those, if what I've just said to you makes you think, oh, well, then I won't bother. Well, then it kind of isn't for you, you know? Um, I when I was starting out, <laughs> almost every other week, I would read something by some veteran writer uh, warning young writers about how difficult it was to break into the industry and how none of us stood a chance uh, and, you know, n none of us could make a living anymore and it doesn't pay enough and there's no point getting into comics and blah, blah, blah. And I, I read them and I went, yeah, but, you know, maybe it'll be different for me. I'm still going to try. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to. Uh, because that's the and the thing is that's a delusional attitude but you have to have that self-delusion you have to think to yourself no it'll be different for me uh because that's the only way in which you can give yourself the fortitude and the perseverance to keep trying and to never give up because of course the moment you give up well then you've given up you know go and do something else and so for me giving up was never an option and if you have that attitude you could well find yourself some success in comics. Um, but it still won't be easy. I'll promise you that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But speaking of, of don't quit your day job, then what is your other than comics day job? Uh, well, I suppose what you count as my day job these days is writing video games uh, as well as comics. I split my time about 50 50 between comics and video games. Um, that's something else that's taken a bit of a hit. Uh, just because of the sort of demands on my time uh, since Atomic Blonde is I am I'm consulting on a couple of video games at the moment, but I'm not I haven't uh, sort of worked for weeks and weeks and months and months at a time on a game for, you know, a year or two now, just because I unfortunately can't spare the time to do that. But that is the other thing that I do. I like to I, I've been a gamer since pretty much since video games were invented. Uh, I love games and I enjoy working in games. And so, yeah, that's something mm. else that, uh, you know, that I can do as a kind of, you know, extra revenue stream. That's the other thing. It never hurts to have more than one source of income, frankly. And is that why you think that every writer, every comics creator goes for, I want to do this as a movie? Uh, I, well, would, I would they make a lot reason, of money yeah. in a, with a movie? I don't know. I mean, we, we of well, course, are, are not going to get told 
what you made selling uh, Atomic Blonde. Um, I was suddenly, I don't know if you would tell us. Um, what, what, <laughs> what I'll tell you is that it was enough that I don't have any concerns about money for a while, you know. Hi, uh, lovely. You know, on the other hand, I will also tell you that it's probably almost certainly not as much as most people think. Because a lot of people assume that when this happens, suddenly you're a millionaire. And I am not a millionaire. That is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't get any percentages of uh, of those 98 plus million in the box office? Unfortunately not. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, Anthony, it's been lovely um, having you on Art Bubble Late Night. And um, I hope that all of our listeners... Will seek out your work. I certainly do. Uh, I'm I'm in love with your work. I have been for years. Um, and if people happen to be travelling outside of Denmark uh, in the foreseeable future, where where do you think they might see you at a show? Uh, in terms of shows, actually, I'm not. I don't have anything lined up. I was supposed to be in Dunfermline this last weekend, but unfortunately that got cancelled because of the terrible snow that we had here in the UK. Um, and I don't currently have any other conventions uh, sort of, you know, that I'm committed to this year. Um, I go to Thought Bubble most years, which is the one held in Leeds. Yes, uh, our, our competitor this year. We are actually right. on the same weekend. Oh, no. Yes, I know. Oh, no. Uh, well, that's a shame because yeah, I mean, I I, I live near mm, Leeds, yeah. So uh, I always go to Thought Bubble. It's it's effectively my local convention. But beyond that, to be honest, I'm I may turn up at a convention here or there, but I'm not, as I say, I'm not committed to any. So uh, the best way to find me is virtually. Uh, I'm afraid. So you don't even have to leave your house. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Anthony at Anthony Johnston, and my website is anthonyjohnston.com. Just spell my name correctly. Uh, and you know, you'll find me online because, uh, that's my URL. That's my Twitter handle. That's my Facebook name as well. And on those spoken words are thank you, Anthony, for uh, joining us here. And we'll see you, if not at a show in the UK or in the US, hopefully back at Art Bubble within the next few years, maybe. We'll see. I certainly hope, I certainly hope so. Yeah. I would, uh, I would very much like that indeed. And it's been a, a pleasure chatting with you, Arnie. Always is. All right. Cheers, mate, and have a really, really good day. You too. Thank you for joining us at Art Bubble Late Night. Check out our show notes for more information on this week's guest, our jingle composer Vettendorf, and visit art-bubble.dk for information on the festival. We will be back next week with new past and future guests of Art Bubble, the Danish International Comics Arts Festival. Art Bubble 2018 will be at Dock 1 in Aarhus on September 22nd and 23rd. This show has been recorded and produced by Arnie Beck Gunnarsson.